Problem Gambling podcast is proudly sponsored by Gamban, the simple and effective way to block access to online gambling on all your devices. If willpower slips, Gamban doesn't. Go to gamban.com to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Problem Gambling podcast. I'm Barry Grant, an addiction counsellor with External Problem Gambling, and my co-host is Tony O'Reilly, also an addiction counsellor with the project and the co-author of the book, Tony 10. And today we're delighted to have as our guest, Professor John O'Brennan uh, from the Department of Sociology in Maynooth University, who has been doing some great research into gambling uh, trends, harms and responses uh, in Ireland. A massive, massive report. And considering that there's so little research in an Irish context, it was very, very welcome to see that. Uh, that re- report is available online. It was co-authored by John's colleagues, uh, Professor Afra Kerr and Dr. Luth. Chia Vasquez Mendoza. It's a lengthy but very, very well worth the read if, like me, you're a nerd about all this stuff and if you have any passing interest. And I, myself and Tony, are contacted pretty much on a weekly basis or probably even a few times a week by students. They could be journalism students or sociology students or students who are doing their master's thesis or some other dissertation or an assignment on gambling, gambling addiction, advertising of gambling. Yeah, actually, a lot of marketing students get in contact as well. So if you're interested in that side of things, this is a massive piece of very valuable research. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Let's start with your own research, if, if we might. Like, what? how did you get into that? Is that something that you've always been interested in, the gambling side of things? But Barry, I started my working life working for a bookmaker. You might say that there's no better education than you could get about life. Um, And I did that for a number of years. I then lived in Australia for a while and I worked for the New South Wales Totalisator Agency Board. It's a sort of nationalised system. Um, So for the first five years or so after leaving school, gambling was a big part of my life. Um, I left it behind when I went to university, but I've always had a very deep interest in sport. And like others, I have been aware over the last 15 years or so about how gambling was seeping into our lives in all kinds of ways, that it wasn't confined to physical spaces anymore, like the traditional betting shop or casinos. Um, But because of the digital revolution, it was literally something that you could live with 24 hours a day. As our minister uh, in charge of regulation puts it, the digital change means that everybody's walking around with a casino in their pocket. Um, I was also struck by just the prevalence of gambling, (coughs) advertising, promotion and marketing, and how this had changed over the last 20 years, become very sophisticated. Most gambling, the big gambling corporations have very large budgets. They understand their markets very well and they target that marketing. And I suppose it was the sense that sport was being displaced by gambling. Um, All of the things that President Higgins has said in the recent past, again, as a great sports lover, um, that watching sport merely for the enjoyment of sport 
uh, is almost incidental now for a proportion of our population because they've been persuaded that gambling has to be part of the uh, consumption of sport. Um, so I think those were amongst my own sort of personal reasons, wondering um, why uh, in Ireland, at a time when other countries were really beginning to grapple with this problem, um, we seem to have no regulation. We seemed to constitute almost the Wild West of Europe in gambling terms because of the failure of successive governments to regulate the sector, and all at a time where the digital revolution was making gambling products more and more available and more and more dangerous to a good proportion of our people. Yeah, so that's fascinating, and, and you make a lot of good points there. I mean, just going back to the start there, so you started out, your first job was in a bookmaker's betting shop uh, in Ireland, so you have that experience, and you mentioned the totalizer. is it advertising board? I never knew. The TAB, yeah. Yeah, the, the TAB, so a lot of Irish people have been in Australia know what the TAB is. We have some listeners who are in Australia who may or may not be Irish, we don't know, uh, but for people who don't know i mean i'm actually working with somebody who's based out in australia at the moment and i'm trying to wrap my head around the tab for people in ireland if you've never been to australia like they have essentially bookie shops in bars uh, widely spread across australia which from an irish context one of the things that we're always looking at is self-exclusion right so you can self-exclude yourself from online you can self-exclude yourself from betting shops casinos okay what if all the bars in your area are also betting shops? <laughs> Legalized ones, unlike the illegal ones that we sometimes yeah, have. In I, I think 30 years ago, it was just this extraordinary revelation to me that you could walk into a pub and almost every pub had a branch of the TAB within it. Um, the other place where you can really see it is in social clubs of different kinds. Um, I was a member of the Eastern Suburbs Rugby League uh, Club, for example, in Bondi in Sydney, and they had a vast building which had a gym and a swimming pool, but they had six or seven floors of poker machines and other um, online or um, slots uh, of different kinds. It was really just vast. Uh, and that was 30 years ago. That was way before the encroachment of gambling further into our lives. Uh, in recent years yeah that's it always kind of amazes me i know we're going on a slight tangent but we will get onto the research in a second because my, my grandfather was born in waterford but the whole family moved to brisbane when he was a kid so he grew up in australia and uh, my father would have been out there a few times visiting family in the 70s say 70s and 80s and he talked about how puritanical it was around alcohol you know that the pubs were closed very early and there was this mad rush to get to the pubs and people were hoofing drinks into them because they closed at like six o'clock and stuff and it's very kind of puritanical on the one side around uh, alcohol rules and that similar i was in new zealand years ago you know no off sales of alcohol on sundays and interesting rules around around alcohol there and then you cut to not very much longer and you have like gambling on this 
massive scale, completely embedded in social clubs and bars. Uh, my brother was telling me that one of the cinemas they used to go to in Sydney had a casino in the cinema and they'd go to the casino because they'd get like free food in the buffet and cheap drinks and stuff and you know, play a bit of uh, whatever in the casino. Like, the, to get from here to there is very interesting. Yeah, um, so much socialising in Australia is done not so much in pubs and bars, but in um, the rugby leagues clubs and clubs of that type and also RSL clubs, these are returned soldiers leagues clubs. They are kind of local clubs with cheap food, cheap drink, and a vast range of poker machines and other things that you can play. And it so it's been sort of part of the fabric there since that time. It's about 83 when uh, Australia elected a new government, a, a Labour government under Bob Hawke and Paul Keating. And they deregulated everything within the economy. So I think it's from there that it dates. New Zealand did something similar from about the same time. And it's no coincidence that the Keating government and the Hawke governments were the inspiration for Tony Blair's new Labour. And remember, that was the government that deregulated gambling in Britain with disastrous results 17 or 18 years ago. Yeah, and that has, because we're going to touch on advertising and that, has a big impact on Ireland because I suppose the to some degree you know the UK sneezes and we catch a cold like this because so much of the content that terrible word but so much of the television content that we consume in Ireland is actually British television content right which means that if they change rules around things like gambling advertising and sponsorship in the UK we're exposed to it over in the Republic of Ireland and, and in Northern Ireland obviously so that would have a meaningful impact here, you would imagine. Is that something that you looked at in your own research, like that kind of liberalisation in the UK, if that had an impact on Ireland, or was that kind of outside of the scope? Well, I think if you look back at that Labour government uh, headed by Blair and Gordon Brown, um, I think the impulses that sort of informed policy were very similar here. You remember the Fianna Fáil government of the time. Um, the way you can really see deregulation in action, I think, is in the financial sector and in banking. In the run-up to th 2008, even a supposedly left-wing prime minister like Gordon Brown just decided to remove virtually all regulation from the city of London, and it had catastrophic effects uh, within a short time. You'd hope that lessons would have been learned from that era. Um, but, but I think there's a broader sort of cultural thing which you refer to with the kind of televisual landscape. Um, there is a close relationship between the two countries. There's no doubt about that culturally. Um, betting patterns, I think, have been very similar over a long period of time. Um, but we really begin to diverge from the UK, I think, uh, at the point where they start regulating gambling properly when they introduced the UK Gambling Commission. And since then, um, you can really see these differences opening up where we do no regulation at all. And despite the fact that the UK has made very significant strides to get to grips with the problem, um, there's, there be, there's been widespread criticism of the UK Gambling Commission. So it dishes out sometimes large-scale fines to gambling operators that are deemed to be in breach of their obligations. 
Um, but yet, if you look at the gambling review that's going on in the UK currently, there is huge dissatisfaction. And there does seem to be a seriousness, I think, about the all-party parliamentary group, for example, the kind of changes that they seem to be flirting with or entertaining, that I think we are going to see a further consolidation of regulation in the UK, which makes it all the more important, I think, that the upcoming regulation in Ireland is muscular and robust as possible. I mean, I would agree with you 100% there. Have you had a chance to look at the gambling regulation bill, the new one, not the old one that sat on the shelf for eight years and went nowhere, but the, the new one? Have you had a chance to look at that or any thoughts on it? Yes. Um, firstly, it's very welcome after this um, vacuum that we have been operating in for such a long time. Um, I worry, however, that the gambling legislation, when it eventually emerges from the Oireachtas, may not be ambitious enough. And the key thing here, I think, is to look at the work that informed that new legislation. Um, and there you've got to look at the 2019 interdepartmental report. Um, it's a big document. They draw on developments in lots of other jurisdictions uh, where clearly there are examples that Ireland might follow in specific areas. But to me, the whole tone of the document was too conservative. And in some areas, suggesting that the self-regulation of the industry might be the most appropriate way to proceed. They offer all kinds of caveats about legal problems if we attempt robust regulation. I don't really think those things stand up. I think it probably reflects the influence of the horse racing industry in Ireland and the gambling operators. And while I'm hoping that the legislation that does emerge is uh, appropriate and is tough, um, I'm still doubtful that we'll get legislation that uh, really helps us to address the problem. It's welcome, of course, that we're finally going to see a regulator introduced. But if you look at the new legislation, so much of um, what might happen in the future is really down to the powers that are to be granted to the regulator. And we really don't know at this point the range of those powers, what they're going to consist on, and what kind of punitive sanctions might be available to the regulator to punish transgressors amongst uh, companies in the gambling sphere if they are deemed to be in um, uh, violation of their obligations. Yeah, that remains to be seen, and I suppose it remains to be seen what version of the original draft ends up making it through the the Oireachtas, uh if at all hopefully it will but one would imagine some uh, amendments will be proposed by uh, politicians who might have you know uh, major gambling operators in their constituency or major horse breeders and trainers and all that kind of thing which is normal and you know, I suppose part of the the political system but yeah to find some balance there where even just an admission that this is a public health issue the addiction side of it and the gambling related harm side of it and we need to do something about that like that has to be at the core of what they're doing on the harm minimization or the harm 
production side and we've never had that here like that's the big problem it's just been ignored it's been left between so many stools it's not a health problem it's just justice problem oh no we'll bounce it around over here you get sent around the houses nobody wants to take responsibility for it gambling addiction is a health problem gambling harms are a health problem and they touch off other areas as well so the social inclusion or whatever we've too many silos in government anyway but if you want to boil it all down gambling addiction is a health problem and that has to has to be acknowledged well i, th- I would agree with you there's a lot of good stuff in the current draft we'll see how, <laughs> how far that goes right so one of the things in your own research remind me when you did that research because there's everything in now is kind of pre-pandemic and inter-pandemic and i don't know if we're into the post-pandemic period yet but was some of it done during the pandemic or yeah we started the work uh in late 2019 and so the pandemic when it arrived was very disruptive uh, no doubt about that um but we um proceeded there was a lot of desk research you know we weren't interviewing Uh, people who had problems with gambling, we were trying to look at the international evidence and trying to make a determination about where Ireland sat exactly within this international landscape. Um, So there was a lot of desk research and we completed the work in January uh, 2021, again, when we were in the, I suppose, the most extreme phase of the lockdown. Um, and then published in, I think it was the end of March uh, 21. Yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, definitely that would have been uh, problematic, certainly in, tr- in terms of trying to do that, although you, you were successful in, in talking to a lot of relevant people and doing some really interesting research on it. I mean, in terms of, I suppose it's probably too early to say, in terms of the feedback you were getting from interviewees, was there a sense that the pandemic was impacting on, say, gambling-related harm in any way? Certainly the message we were getting from people involved in the treatment of problem gambling, uh, charities of one kind or another, um, they were certainly telling us that there were more people presenting with gambling problems than they had been used to pre-pandemic. And this is confirmed, I think, by a lot of the international evidence, which shows that um, in these different phases of lockdown, that um, people who particularly may have had a problem or the propensity to develop a problem actually did. Now, I think there's still a lot of research to be done um, across Europe and across other parts of the world uh, about measuring precisely the impact of the pandemic. But you don't need to be a Nobel Science winner to intuitively grasp that the kind of conditions that people were forced to live in uh, and the openness that um, people, uh, the exposure rather that people had to the online world that they might not have had in their lives previously, um, that that created significantly more problems yeah certainly that was what we saw on the grounds and yeah you wouldn't have to be a Nobel laureate to to surmise that one again nobody likes jumping to conclusions or making assumptions but certainly 
a lot of the drivers would be there that would be kind of nudging <clears throat> ter terrible word nudging people in that direction right not necessarily deliberately but there would be a lot of things that would be kind of piling on the, the the pressure in that direction i mean one of the numbers because of course you know there's a good piece of reporting around your uh, research when it came out at the time which is great uh, headline writers love big scary numbers one of the numbers that they focused in on was uh, this number that you'd arrived at in the report that there were 55,000 people in the republic it was the republic of ireland only that you were looking at in the republic of ireland uh, with gambling problems right so how did you arrive at that because we're going to talk about another report in a minute that has a very very different num big scary number in it well Firstly, we had to contend with the fact that there was virtually no research done previously on rates of problem gambling in Ireland. We had one report which was conducted by the Health Research Board back in 2014-15, and that report was conducted really before this great acceleration in the availability of gambling-related tech. And really extraordinary changes there, especially the availability of apps of different kinds. Um, so using the uh, prevalence rate that that report delivered, 0.8%, uh, we uh, made comparisons with near and neighboring jurisdictions and with others in Europe. And that's how we came up with that figure. Now, it's very interesting that the Health Research Board after a delay has finally produced the successor report to that first one. So I think that's very welcome that we have more evidence in the public domain now. But the report is curious, I think, to say the least. Um, notwithstanding that it has been misreported or some of the headline figures have been reported in a confusing way, it seems to suggest that there has been a, what it calls a significant drop in the prevalence rate of problem gambling since that first report in 2014-15. I'm afraid I don't quite believe it. Uh, all of the trends internationally seem to be pointing in the opposite direction. And the report is suggesting that in Ireland, the problem may have reduced by 30 or 40% overall since the last occasion when they did this research. There are no explanations offered. All, all we've got is hard data. Um, but looking at the report in depth over the last few days, I have been really struggling to understand the methodology that they've employed. I've been trying to um, look at other jurisdictions to see uh, how the methodology employed uh, by various bodies uh, studying those places might compare. And it's not immediately obvious to me. Um, so that's the first point, I think. The, the headline rate of 0.8% from last time, I think is probably consistent with what we see in other jurisdictions. In England, for example, 0.7. Um, so to suggest there's been a drop to 0.4 or so, I think is difficult to understand. The other thing about the report is the way in which uh, it breaks down the numbers. Um, not surprisingly, it suggests that 
men are more susceptible to being at risk from problem gambling than women. Um, it suggests that the problem is kind of acutely concentrated amongst uh, the 15 to 24 and 24 to 39 cohorts of males. So they have a larger incidence of problem and at-risk gambling than other categories. But for me, the really curious thing, Barry, is the way in which the online gambling trends are reported. And I... It's, it seems to suggest that the level of online gambling that is taking place remains actually a small proportion of the overall level of gambling. I mean, it breaks down that people who play the lottery, uh, however often, they constitute the majority of people who have a bet. People who go in to play a bet in the betting shops, the second category, and then online gambling comes in about third or fourth and to me that just does not strike true there's been such a revolution in the whole digital gambling landscape uh, and there are all kinds of ways in which we have learned about uh, the new ways in which people are gambling that does not seem to be reflected in the figures and I think this is very curious and I think it's something that we have to engage in more research on yeah, that certainly jumped out of me as well. And just for people who aren't aware of this and who aren't <laughs> big kind of gambling research nerds uh, as ourselves, maybe it's the Health Research Board uh, recently published report into gambling prevalence uh, in the Republic of Ireland, came out last week. And yeah, that surprised me. I mean, we know because the the betting shop operators, especially the independent ones, have been complaining for years that betting shops are closing down left, right and centre, right? And yes, people still have a tendency to gamble on sports and other things that you can bet on in betting shops. So, and certainly what we would see on the grounds, say on the helpline and in the counselling services, that there's much, much, much more of a move towards online gambling, which is much more harmful potentially and potentially much more addictive, right? So one of the limitations which the, the, the researchers or the authors of the report outlined was that young males were underrepresented in the survey that they did. Now, we know that young males are the most at-risk group, so that would skew things slightly, and young males will be the ones who would be most likely to gamble online also. You know. So, yeah, there would be some concerns about that, yeah, because, I mean, your estimate in your own research was 55,000 people in Ireland with a gambling problem. Not long afterwards, and actually, because the Health Research Board took quite a while to release their data, they were doing their research around the same time as you guys were doing your research, just yours was released quite a bit earlier. Um, yeah, and they seem to have run into a problem with COVID's arrival in the early part of um, uh, 2020, uh, the report says that they interviewed about 5,700 people that they had aimed for about 6,200. But to me, that doesn't suggest uh, any major problem in terms of methodology. Um, uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm curious about it, but I, I, I don't think the COVID, the arrival of COVID actually explains um, some of the anomalies that seem to crop up within the data. 
And, and for us, there's a real challenge, I think. One of the things I want to do is to look at the prevalence rates that have emerged from other countries that are comparable to Ireland, you know, small and medium-sized countries in Europe in particular. And I just would like to drill down into the gambling activities sections of those reports to see what the figures for the online participation uh, actually are in Finland, for example, in the Netherlands and places like that. Um, because as I've said, I, I, I think the Irish figure looks strikingly low. Yeah. Yeah. It's a strange well, look. I mean, uh, I don't know the first thing about doing good research and I would take the health research boards kind of bona fides at face value. So, I mean, I suppose it's important to say that as well, but yeah, it seems off. And again, I think I was on radio talking about this last week that my personal perception on this is totally skewed because 100% of the people that I work with are affected by gambling addiction, either as family members or individuals with gambling problems. So, you know, uh, you know, I would have a very skewed perception on this anyway. So don't take my word for anything research related. That'd be the first thing. Uh, but yeah, that would be a concern because, I mean, traditionally, we have been one of the biggest online gamblers on planet Earth. If you look at the H2, which is one of these kind of big uh, corporate uh, gambling researchers, they're not looking at, uh, they're just looking at numbers in terms of spend. You know, they don't look at, uh, at uh, addiction or anything like that. Uh, I think the most recent one, like Ireland, would still be one of the top per capita online gamblers on planet Earth. Uh, <laughs> Just to, to, to give you an example of how anomalous this seems, Barry, um, to look at the prevalence of gambling this time around compared to 2014-15. Um, now, the category that we mentioned, online gambling, actually includes gambling by telephone as well. The two are combined together. And the report suggests that there has been a fall in online and telephone gambling since 2014-15, from 43 to 3.9%. That just cannot be right. It doesn't accord with anything we know about the real world. No, and especially in a pandemic when your options for old-fashioned retail bricks and mortar gambling are non-existent, right? So people who would normally gamble in bricks and mortar shops or casinos or amusement arcades if they wanted to gamble at all, whether recreationally or otherwise, had to move online. So and everything, way, yeah. This is yeah. also challenged by the figures we have, the data on the um, spending of gambling corporations on advertising and marketing. Those figures for the big companies have gone up and up and up in recent years. And much of it has been focused on social media and the online world. Now, are you really telling me that those companies are focusing the vast majority of their marketing on an area where only 4% of the population actually concentrate their activity? That just cannot be right. Yeah, that seems off. And that would, it is concerning because, okay, there's a couple of things there. We know that online gambling is much more addictive because of the ease of access. You know, the smartphone, some people have behavioral kind of researchers have described the smartphone as the cigarette of the 21st century you know we're surgically attached to our smartphones more so the apps on the smartphones and probably more so things like social media and games but then you throw something like gambling in there which is we know that it's addictive long before there was an online world we knew that gambling was addictive so 
you combine all these things, then you create a situation or you don't create a situation. A situation occurs where all retail, old fashioned bricks and mortar options are taken off the menu. All of these things are pushing people in the direction of more online gambling. Like everything will be, you know, unless you know, a large proportion of the population just decided I'm going to stop gambling completely. Uh, and for whatever reason, there's nothing to indicate that. If I look at our, say, something simple like our website traffic uh, over the course of the pandemic. So people who be going to a website called problemgambling.ie, you probably don't stumble across it accidentally. Right? You'd probably go looking for it for a specific reason. 50% year on year for the two years of the pandemic increase, right? So that's people looking for information about help for gambling addiction, essentially either for themselves or for a family member, increasing. That's a very easily trackable metric using Google Analytics who tell us what the, the, the traffic is to our website. Yeah. So, yeah, I would agree with you 100% that something is off there. Now, that's not a criticism of the HRB. I think one of the things that campaigners around the world have been saying about problem gambling prevalence studies is that they are inherently flawed for a variety of reasons in that people generally, there's so much stigma around gambling and problem gambling that people might not want to be you know completely open and honest in their answers people probably tend to underestimate how much time and money they spend gambling anyway even if they're not deliberately being dishonest you know there are a lot of things there that would tend towards underreporting uh, to make it difficult to get a correct figure when you're doing any problem gambling prevalence survey anywhere in the world right that's straight off the bat you're up against it trying to get good data would that be is that something you've come across in your study oh yeah it's absolutely consistent with polling uh conducted by political scientists um where uh for example people will um, in the united states for example during the trump era uh trump's numbers were routinely underreported by opinion polls or how well he was doing in particular states at a particular time because of this phenomenon of the shy Trump voter, people who did not want to admit that they were voting for Trump. Uh, there were actually many more of them than the polls suggested. And this was reflected then in uh, the figures, not just in 2016, but remember in uh, 2020, he got 76 million votes. He increased his vote by about 4 million. So there's definitely a phenomenon there uh, that's related to embarrassment or not wanting to be publicly shamed, even where these surveys are being conducted anonymously. People don't tend to admit to things that they feel might compromise them in some way or make them look bad. Yeah, so it is a challenge. And that's not a criticism necessarily of the HRB. These things are notoriously difficult to do. And, and, yeah. and here, I think the report is very interesting and very valuable. I think for the task for people like us now is to go away and look at the numbers and do as much analytical work as we can. But I really welcome the fact that we have this report. It's only the second of its kind. And we, we really need much more research from a whole variety of different dimensions on the nature of the problem in order to get to grips with what we believe to be a very serious social problem. 
Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. Like one of the things that kind of jumped out at me from that HRB report and the reporting around it, because in fairness to the HRB, they they created a scale which was not in the previous uh, prevalence study, which was done by the National Advisory on Council on Drugs and Alcohol 2014-2015. That had just done a very simple analysis using a different tool to get there. Uh, they just said 0.8% of the population age 15 or over meet the criteria for problem gambling. Okay, that was it. In the new study, they broke it up. So they said, I uh, can't remember the percentages, but let's say number-wise, I think it was 90,000 at low risk, but some risk of, of, of gambling-related harm. I think 35,000, I think, moderate, so they would be experiencing some level of moderate of gambling harm, but not meeting the criteria for problem gambling and then 12,000 problem gambling right so 137,000 on a spectrum of gambling related harm which we know is underreported the HRB admit that it's one of the limitations of all these studies and we know that they didn't talk talk to enough young men who would be the most at risk cohort that would cause more levels of underreporting but let's say it is what it is 137,000 people on a spectrum but of course all of the major <laughs> News outlets, including our national broadcaster, just focused on the 12,000 at the very end of that spectrum, right? And I suppose one of the things that I was putting out on social media is, you know, that famous quote from Desmond Tutu about instead of just pulling people out of the ri river, why don't we go upstream and figure out why they're jumping in, right? The 100, the uh, 137, sorry, 125,000 people who are upstream of the 12,000, and we know that 12,000 is not the correct figure, it's it's an under-reporting. The 125,000 who are upstream could very, very possibly end up in that problem gambling place. We need to go upstream and do preventative work to try and stop those people from ending up there, right? But when out news outlets, which I get because they have to oversimplify complicated and somewhat boring things like research reports for the general public, I get that. But when they do things like, say, there's only 12,000, that arms bad actors in the gambling industry. I'm not saying all, all people in the gambling industry are bad, but there are people there whose motivations will be very, very different to mine. And Tony's and I imagine yours, for example, and other people who have public health concerns about gambling harm. It arms them with a headline and a piece of data from the government that says, well, a couple of years ago, the numbers were, I think, the original guesstimate we had from the Institute for Public Health was 40,000. Your study said 55,000. Now we have a reporting of 12,000. So if there are bad actors in the gambling industry or you know other industries who would like to see less regulation of gambling, well, we couldn't have less regulation of gambling, but a watered-down version of the proposed gambling <laughs> regulations, they could say, well, look, we've got no regulation. The numbers are falling off a cliff. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. That is unhelpful, I think. Yes, I, I think you're absolutely right. And it points to the need to drill down into these figures very carefully. You're right again, I think, that headline rate of 12,000 is vastly understating the nature of the problem. If you put together the figures for people who are classified as problem gamblers or moderate risk gamblers, for example, within... The, those two categories, there are uh, 
and, and if you concentrate on the 15 to 24 group and on the 25 to 34 group, um, what do you get? Well, you get 4.1% of the latter group who are classified either as problem gamblers or moderate risk. And you get 2.7% of the 15 to 24s. Now, the big issue here, Barry, I think is that the potential for escalation and the time frame nowadays for escalation of a gambling problem uh, has collapsed. We know that, for example, some gambling products are particularly dangerous, that people who play online slot machines, for example, can literally go from 0 to 90 in rapid time. Within the space of a few days, they can develop a chronic problem. So I think this really calls for careful analysis and appraisal of the numbers. But, and, and it may also require that we when looking at the problem, we devote resources, particularly at those two cohorts that I mentioned, because the data seems to suggest there's a heavy concentration of the problem in men aged between 15 and 34. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. And that's certainly what we would see myself. Tony's being very quiet there. He's, he's listening intently. Um, but that's certainly what we would see. That's well, we don't see 15 year olds. We, we almost never see anyone under the age of 18. Although Tony does a lot of harm prevention work in the schools at the moment. So we are reaching out to those kind of 15, 16 year old age groups. Um, but yeah, I mean, it needs to be targeted because you can be damn sure that the gambling industry know that that's their market and they're targeting advertising at that precise cohort, right? So we need to target public health interventions at the same cohort as well to if we're going to have any chance of minimizing harm. I mean, one of the, the issues, and again, we're getting a bit gonky here, but one of the issues when you try and compare the 2014-2015 study with the current one is they used a different measurement tool. Right. So it's difficult to get an apples to apples comparison to say, well, are things decreasing, which would be great. Look, I mean, if problem gambling rate in Ireland is dropping myself and Tony, and I'm sure yourself would be the first people <laughs> waving flags in the street to say this is a great thing and happy days. And let's have more of this. Let's do more of what we're doing to get the numbers to drop, because that's the business that we're in. Right. And if it's happened, it's a miracle because it's happened in the complete absence of regulation and in almost the complete absence of the state from uh, gambling uh, treatment uh, programs. So it's one of the biggest miracles of our time, if indeed the rate of problem gambling has dropped in the way that we've suggested here. Yeah, it would be a miracle or, yeah, somewhat of a coincidence, all right. Uh, and going against the grain in the absence of any intervention at the state level, like nothing. That it would be, yeah, difficult to comprehend how or why that would happen. Tony, you wanted to jump in there. But also the time when the industry has shown record profits as well. So, like, you know, go back to, you know, what the CEO of Carl said in the, in the UK, like, you know, that's, um, you know, if people gamble more, more than we're going to have more issues. Like, and we are seeing huge rises in profits. So it's people are gambling more, obviously. Um, so then for then the harm to reduce while that's happening, it just doesn't make sense to me. 
And we know also, of course, Tony, that there is a direct link between the profits of big gambling companies and problem gamblers. A majority of the profits of most of these companies comes from a very small number of people who are classified as problem gamblers. So you're right. That yep. correlation again suggests that this the data here is problematic. Yeah, and it's and it's not it's not what we're seeing on the ground either. Like what the cold face of this, we're seeing like the majority of people I would work with, it's online. It's after and the and the issue, as you rightly said, it's my addiction was spanned over 12 years, but now we're seeing people who get this addiction over three or four months. It's like it spirals so quickly and so much easier, easier online. And then they're saying that, you know, at a time when all the bookies were closed, a time when all the sports, a lot of sports were shut down as well, record, record profit. So that just something doesn't quite fit in with everything. And it's great to listen to you explaining the research. And I'm sure like for someone who wouldn't be a, a nerd when it comes to um, research like Barry, it's great to hear that and to really get my head around what's happening because it really, it simplifies it for, for someone or maybe some of the people listening in that can kind of, it just shows that this is not representative of what we're seeing on the ground. It's not representative of what I'm hearing in the schools. It's not representative of any of the previous data, of any of the data in the UK. And you said something really good earlier on. You said that like in the UK with all the, with the, with all the kind of legislation and regulation, the Gambling Commission, all the stuff being brought in, and they're still seeing the same figures, but it, yet we've had no regulation, no funding, and it's we're seeing kind of, and this has gone down. So it's um, like I, I know myself and Barry were, were fairly upset when the report came out. Well, I suppose not upset, but upset how it was reported, I think, because as Barry said earlier on, it's trying to put that genie back into the bottle now because that's the figure that's out there. And, you know, we're working so hard, you're working so hard, and a lot of other people are to try to get a proper picture of what it looks like in Ireland. And then one headline can just sweep all that away and because you know as, as Barry was saying some people will really latch on to that but what we're doing is working and I often say it from my own story 11 years ago now I'm still seeing the same failings when working with people so it can't be that things have improved so much that there isn't any more issues out there and, and like I would love that to be even though it probably have a job which I'm okay with that but we'd love that to be that that would be the case where we're seeing less and less people but we're, we're seeing the opposite on in our service. And I know on other services as well, they're seeing increases upon increase as well. And it's also true in the UK that in response to all of this, the NHS has set up gambling-specific treatment centres. I think there are about 14 or 15 of them that have been rolled out or are being rolled out. And that includes youth treatment centres, so specifically focused on the problem that Tony and yourself, Barry, uh, work on in going out into schools. We know virtually nothing about the nature of the problem in that age category in Ireland. We know virtually nothing about the problem within universities and intuitive evidence suggests to me that there is a problem there. And that's why I think it's just so important that we do this sort of truncated research and try and bring it all together to give us a better picture of the whole. Yeah, well, we do have the European school survey. So thank goodness for the EU for some things that the, for the first, they do those every couple of years and they look at school going young people aged 15 to 16 around the EU. And um, for the second time, or the first time a few years back, they looked at gambling, but they didn't look at problem gambling. They just looked at gambling activity. And the most recent one, which I think was 2019, they used the 
problem gambling severity index and they use that as a metric of uh, you know prob- to see if there were any young people gambling problematically in that uh, group and there's an irish specific report from that european school survey uh, we got, I think his name was Connor Kyo uh, from UCD. Uh, Crystal Fulton helped us out with arranging that to break down the numbers because I'm not a numbers person <laughs> or a researcher. Uh, so Connor took the numbers and kind of worked out because they didn't give a prevalence. So worked out uh, the prevalence was 1.7% in males in that cohort. So age 15 to 16 in secondary school, Irish males problem gambling prevalence rate 1.7 percent now the current hrb report says that the the rate for the general population age 15 and upwards is 0.3 percent male and female so all across the entire population so if the european school survey data is correct and if we've analyzed that data correctly with, with connor keogh from ucd then we've got major major problems coming down the line like major major problems i i agree we should really be cognizant of it but again in the case of the hrb data just looking at it um it is again about how you classify these things and as you rightly say there are sometimes problems comparing apples with oranges but um in the hrb data it's a total of 2.7 percent if you add in the moderate risk gambler category in the 15 to 24 age group so that's a that's a very significant cohort of the population. Yeah, and at the same time, I mean, the, the last Northern Ireland study, which is a few years ago, but not a million years ago, uh, uh, showed 2.3% problem gambling and about 5% at risk, right? Now, which would mean that even in their much smaller population, I think their population is about a third of the population of the Republic, that they would have the same number of people with <laughs> gambling problems as the entire republic right so so and that is something that's always kind of boggled my mind and there have been two northern ireland studies that both come in around the same numbers there's you know obviously there are cultural differences in many areas north and south of the border but the gambling culture would be pretty similar pretty similar i know they have sunday closing still in in the uh, betting shops in northern ireland few minor differences but Generally, broadly speaking, you would imagine that the culture of gambling north and south of the border on the island of Ireland is fairly similar, right? And yes, what massive disparity there. Yeah, and it's not just the headline rate of 2.3, as you rightly point out. Once you go into the next set of categories, you're very quickly getting to 8, 9, 10% of the population. There's a huge disparity there, not just with the Republic, but also with the other regions of the United Kingdom. Um, If you compare the Northern Ireland rate in every category to Wales, England and Scotland, it's two or three times uh, the level of problem gambling in those regions. So, again, it calls for, I think, really important research to be done on the island of Ireland and to try and explain what's going on specifically in Northern Ireland and how we might usefully compare what's going on in both jurisdictions. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd love to figure out, well, obviously not me personally, but I'd love to see someone figure out how to crack that nut. Like, are we massively underreporting in the South? Are they overreporting in the North? Is there actually you know, a massive disparity 
disparity in reality between the two jurisdictions you know that will be a great piece of research hopefully somebody will get some funding somewhere along the line to, to figure that one out i know we'll I'll probably need to finish up shortly but one thing we were talking about uh, touching on before we started recording today was was the u.s uh, market kind of opening up and obviously you've worked in a betting shop you've in ireland and you've worked uh, w- within the tab or in, in, in some role in, in australia uh so different markets different levels of maturity and then we have this kind of virgin territory in many ways when it comes to sports betting obviously there are casinos uh, that have been long-standing in the u.s and there's been the long-standing organized crime <laughs> gambling which were most most of the sports betting was happening up until very recently but now we have you know the biggest market in the world essentially for buying and selling anything has now just legalized gambling in almost every state most of the big players that are now operating over there are from this part of the world, from the, the UK and Ireland. So, you know, they know what the pitfalls are in terms of the harms that can be caused by gambling. You were talking about watching the Super Bowl the other night. Do you get a sense that these British and Irish operators are going into the United States using all of the information that they have about the harms of gambling to protect all these lovely American people? Yes, we know that it's so <laughs> beneficial. Absolutely. That's, um, one of the things that um, deregulation, I think, is going to do and is already doing probably is elevating the really big gambling companies, for, as you say, from our part of the world to becoming the biggest in the world, literally, because some of them have made very smart decisions either before the Supreme Court judgment in 2018, which literally opened everything up, or afterwards. And they've been buying up sports betting organizations and companies of smaller scale, uh, but knowing that uh, deregulation was coming. Uh, New York, for example, is one of the latest to have introduced online gambling. Uh, I think it was in late January. Uh, Now, this to us seems very strange because we've had telephone and online gambling for such a long time. Um, So I think we're going to see a tsunami of gambling problems and gambling addiction emerging in the United States. And this can happen very quickly. If If you recall what happened, for example, with the drug OxyContin, when that came onto the market, um, there's an extraordinary series called Dope Sick starring Michael yeah. Keaton, which is just incredible to watch. And um, what's remarkable is that Keaton's character, who is a doctor who is very skeptical about um, painkillers, himself becomes addicted in double quick time. And if you look at the Super Bowl numbers, they were literally just through the roof, the amount of gambling that uh, took place on, you can literally bet on anything as the, the game is unfolding. Uh, and, and literally every day now we are seeing uh, new reports from different states about mergers and acquisitions uh, or about the record profits being made by gambling entities. Very few reports about the impact of this on people's health and welfare, but I think inevitably that's going to come in the future. We're, we're literally going to see a tsunami. The Americans always do things bigger and bolder and in a more brash way than everybody else. And that probably means that the problem when it emerges is going to be even worse than the kind of things that we've been talking about in our part of the world. 
Yeah, it's scary, especially in the context of the fact that it's it's the big name brands from this part of the world who know a lot about gambling addiction, who've worked in regulated environments, going out there, knowing what they know. They could, you know, start out blank page, do things the right way from day one. Yeah, and I suppose it kind of tells us a lot about their motivations. One of the things that's pushing against regulation is the fact that after the pandemic, so many governments are desperately in need of money. And I think in the US, you can really see that at the state level, that what they see is expanded gambling, expanded revenue coming in, revenue that is really needed. Nothing, of course, being put aside mostly for treatment. it's, It's mainly coming into state coffers. And I think that is going to be a problem in the years to come. Uh, that that insatiable need that governments have for revenue sometimes makes them blind to where the revenue comes from and how it is actually generated. Yeah, I think you see that in Australia where these poker machines fund schools and stuff. And if you're going, can we have fewer poker machines, please? They're really dangerous and addictive and destroy people's lives. But the schools, right? This, that is bad, right? That is a bad idea to set that up from the get-go. Now, it makes sense if you're the gambling industry or the government who want to make money and don't want to pay for schools. But, you know, for everybody else, bad It's idea. almost like putting smoking vending machines back into schools and saying, there you go, we're helping these schools survive and thrive. <laughs> yeah, look, uh, scary times, I think, for the, the poor Americans, but hopefully it, it won't get too bad. Yeah, I mean, one of the things from that dope sick, uh, I was going to say documentary, it's not a documentary, it's a TV series, uh, or acted, scripted, was the, the abject failures at the regulatory level, which really, that that's where we're relying we're relying on regulators in so many different ways to protect us from the greed of corporate interests right which is normal humans are greedy that's normal and shareholders want to you know pay for the pensions and whatnot all that stuff is normal this is why we have regulators right because without regulators you just get the greed and the consequences and if we don't have proper regulation we're going to end up with serious problems whether it's the fda or gambling commission or whatever Ireland ends up with. Yeah, Yeah, John, I could talk to you all day. Uh, And thanks so much for coming on today and for covering all this stuff. And I suppose just to kind of boil it down a little bit, like with the the research thing, I mean, research is such a valuable thing in so many respects. You know, we need it. We have to have research. Tony and I are not researchers. We're just frontline workers. But, you know, we need researchers like yourself and the people at the HRB and the NACDA and all the different organizations that do great research. I suppose where where maybe it falls down is where the research, which often happens, is in conflict with the other pieces of research. And then the 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 Joe Schmoes like me are going, okay, well, what's the real picture? And you're lobbying politicians, you're going, Well, we think the real picture is this thing, and this piece of research supports it. And then the other side, if there is another side, are going, Well, no, 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 this research says X. And you know, I suppose, is that something, before we finish up today, is that, like, is there a solution to that? Is there a way to kind of to improve upon that? Well, I'm a great believer in the old maxim that good work will always win out. And uh, I, I, there's every case, I think, to examine the problem from every 
perspective possible. Uh, the simple fact is we don't have enough people working in research, Barry, in Ireland uh, to be able to do that. Universities really struggle. You know, the average academic is doing 12 different jobs at once. We all suffer from the fact that the employment control framework, which was imposed after the financial crisis, has never been lifted. So, I mean, we have only hired one new person in our department since 2008 despite the fact that our student numbers have gone through the roof. Um, we have the worst pupil teacher ratio in the university system in Europe, because uh, we just don't spend enough money on teaching and on research. So, you know, there's every argument that uh, more research helps us to understand the different dimensions of any particular social issue or problem. And as I say, in the end, I think it is the good quality work that's supported by a strong evidence base, that's the work that's likely uh, to convince policymakers, I think, of the direction uh, to move in. Um, but there's, we're, we're, we're coming at this from a place where we've accrued huge deficits in knowledge, and we really have to start addressing those, whether it's the propensity of 15 to 24 year olds to gamble, um, their um, vulnerability to gambling, advertising and promotion. We need to do a lot more work in those areas to try and understand the fundamental nature of the problem. Yeah, and I suppose that I agree with you there as well, that we just need lots more research and we need lots more funding so we can have lots more good quality research. And if we end up with, I suppose, conflicting pieces of research, that's fine. But as long as we're getting lots of stuff done that is reliable and i suppose if we get the gambling regulation over the line it should create the social impact fund which would create completely independent source of funding for unbiased research which is what we all want to see and get as much of it done and it can drill down into well let's do an all-island one if we can and make that get that comparison nailed down and let's focus in on the the most at-risk groups and all of the good stuff that needs to happen and this is very important. I was reminded of it, I think it was last week, when a new report came out of a university in the UK um, that was linked to the gambling industry that suggested that the impact of gambling advertising and promotion on gamblers was negligible. Yeah. I was the only person who was sceptical reading that report, but it underlines, I think, the need for absolutely independent and impartial research yeah i believe that was i don't want to say the wrong place i think it was a oh, certain, un, certain university uh from a certain city in in uh, in, in england <laughs> that, yeah. did that that allegedly did that piece of research and yeah i mean that's it's so on the face of it it's so wrong and so dumb like that why would the gambling industry spend so much money on advertising if it has zero impact yeah. like it's just on the face of it it is just so clearly and obviously wrong. <laughs> right. uh, and i suppose yeah the stuff like that does not help but I, I saw that the i think it was the betting and gaming council putting it in the uk putting out that uh, quote about that piece of research which was widely <laughs> hammered by you know a lot of people with functioning brains on social media so yeah that stuff doesn't help you're always going to get that and i suppose yeah the good research should counteract that ideally yeah, yeah. 
Professor John O'Brennan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today and for doing all your great research. And hopefully there'll be more uh, pieces of gambling research from you and your colleagues in the future in the Department of Sociology in Maynooth University. Thank you so much uh, and take care. Thanks, John. Bye bye. The Problem Gambling Podcast is proudly sponsored by Gamban, the simple and effective way to block access to online gambling on all your devices. If willpower slips, Gamban doesn't. Go to gamban.com to find out more.